Father, as we come to you now, our prayer is that your word would be our guide and that in the scriptures you would awaken us to the cause that you are about in the world and the part that we are to play to see that cause become a reality. And so we look to you and we trust that you will make these things evident to us and we pray for guidance from the Holy Spirit and we pray that Christ would build and strengthen His church through the Scriptures for the glory of God so that it might cover the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open with me in the Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, and we will be looking together at the last half of Revelation 7 this morning. And as you are turning, I want to begin by greeting you from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm in the temporary offices here uh, at Grace Baptist Church. My wife, Brandy, and I and our four children are so grateful to you, High Point Baptist Church of Vilsack, for your prayers and your generosity towards our ministry, which looks quite a bit different than we anticipated when we were last with you just over 13 months ago. Of course, we wish we could be there in person with you now. Uh, we loved our time together with you all last winter and are eager uh, to be together with you once again and visit when the time is right. But uh, I'm thankful for Pastor Dwayne's invitation to speak to you this morning in this format and he has assigned me the topic of the goal of global missions. Why do we do missions? What motivates Christians and churches to sacrifice their time and their money and even their lives to spread the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth? These are the questions I hope to help us answer this morning. And there's different ways to ask why. There's different ways of asking why we would do this. And because there are different ways of asking, it means that there are different ways of answering. So for example... We could ask the question something like, well, why do we have to do missions? Which would imply that something has gone wrong. Like, Why does missions need to be done at all? What's wrong with the way things are? What's the big deal if missions doesn't happen? So that's one way to ask, and that is an important one. We could also ask, well, why are we told to do missions? 
This would be like a way of asking, well, who's telling us to do missions? Does the command, does the fact that we're being told to do missions, does that command come from someone with any kind of authority? Like, who's asking? Who says? Why are we told? That would be another way to ask. We could also ask, well, why would I want to do missions? And that, of course, would reflect our motivations. So it might be, it could sound like we're asking, well, what's in it for me? Or, or something like, well, what are the benefits of missions? What good will it do? What difference will it make? But we could also ask, well, just simply, why should it be done? Which, which of course, would be a question of purpose. Why is missions needed? What is the goal of missions? What will be accomplished as we do missions? Why is missions necessary? And in some ways, all of these angles will be addressed in this message because they are all mentioned or referenced by the Apostle John in Revelation 7. And the book of Revelation is so crucial to our understanding of God's purposes in the world precisely because in the book of Revelation, John is writing down for us the vision of what he is seeing and what he is hearing from Jesus about the final fulfillment of all of God's purposes. The revelation begins in chapter 1 with John receiving the command to write the vision that he's receiving in a book. And then chapters 2 and 3 contain the applications that are specific for the seven churches to whom John is writing. And then chapters 4 through the rest of the book, chapter 22, those chapters contain the vision that John is given about the things that will take place at the end of the age. And in Revelation 7, starting in verse 9, we read this glimpse that John receives about the end of the age. He says, Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? 
I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. From this section of verses, I want us to notice three motivations for missions that we see from before the throne of God. Three motivations closely related to three purposes for missions, three reasons to do missions in this vision that John receives from before the throne of God. Number one, the first motivation is the salvation of God's people. The salvation of God's people. You see this clearly in verses 9 and 10. As John looks and sees the great multitude that no one can number. And they come from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb. He describes how they're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. And he records what they cry out with a loud voice about salvation belonging to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the reason that the salvation of God's people is a motivation is because it is stated here by John as a matter of fact. It is the reality of what will happen in the future. So when people ask... Well, if God knows who He will save, then why do I need to share the gospel? Why do I need to evangelize if God has already known who He will save? When people ask that, my answer is, if God didn't know who He would save, I would have no confidence that God could save at all. In other words, God's guarantee that He will save from every tribe and language and people and nation, upholds our confidence to get the gospel to those people groups in the world that are yet unreached with the gospel. And this statement about the salvation of God's people all around the globe seems to anticipate a question, or at least assume a question. And that question is something like, what is the extent of God's salvation? Or or maybe a better way to ask, or at least a more specific way to ask, would be something like, what is the extent of God's authority to save? 
And the answer that John gives is that God has the authority to save an innumerable multitude from every people group on the earth. John knows this because Jesus himself stated at the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, as he appears to his disciples after he has been raised from the dead, and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The reason that they could confidently make disciples of all nations is because all authority in heaven and on the earth had been given to Jesus. So Jesus has the authority in heaven and on earth to tell his people to go to all the earth, to go to all the nations and make disciples of people in all of those nations. And this is a really an appalling kind of a statement by Jesus to say that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's nothing less than a claim of deity. He's getting the wording there from Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. We read in Daniel 7 verse 13 as Daniel himself saw a vision from the Lord, much like John was seeing. And Daniel says in Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. Or you could say authority was given to him. And glory was given to him, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the vision that Daniel sees of one like the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days is the vision of one who has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. And Jesus in Matthew 28 says to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to all the peoples, nations, and languages on the earth because I have authority over them to save them and to see that there are disciples made from all of them. And this authority that is given to the one like the Son of Man is an authority belonging only to God because even as far back as Genesis 12, we read God's promises to Abraham that God intends for the blessing of Abraham to come upon all of the families of the earth. God says to Abraham, I will bless him who blesses you, 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, the tribes, the nations, the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Only God has the authority to bless people from all over the globe. And so Jesus is saying, I have that authority. So the extent of God's authority to save people from every people group on the planet motivates us to get the gospel to those people because we have confidence that God indeed will save them. And we notice not just the extent of God's authority to save, but we also notice the posture of this people, of this multitude. Notice that they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they they are clothed in white robes and they have palm branches in their hands. And John makes clear in other parts of the book of Revelation that these white robes represent that their sins have been cleansed. It is a righteousness that is given to them that they have not earned. It has been imputed to them. And so they are clothed in white robes. And they have palm branches in their hands. And the waving of palm branches is actually reminiscent of Leviticus 23, when during the feasts of the Lord at various times in the year, the Israelites would wave palm branches as they would celebrate the feasts. It was a way of recognizing the Lord's provision for them, the way he had brought them out of captivity in the land of Egypt and had continued to provide for their physical needs. It was a way to celebrate that the Lord was with them, that he had rescued them, that he had come for them, that he had brought them out of salvation, out of slavery into salvation, brought them to himself, which is why in John 12 and in other of the Gospels you read about the coming of the Messiah into Jerusalem and people are on the streets waving palm branches in the air and crying out, Hosanna! It's a cry of salvation. It's a cry for rescue. And at the end of the age, John says that this great multitude that no one could number has palm branches in their hands and they are celebrating that Yahweh once again has come and delivered them and provided for them and made them his own. That's their posture. And notice what is their confession. What do they cry out? They cry out the salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You could say, stealing the language from Daniel 7, salvation belongs to the Ancient of Days and to the one like the Son of Man. Salvation belongs to Him and it can only be received from Him. There is only one source of salvation. It is from God. And it extends to all peoples on the earth. So it's, it's not that one people group finds salvation one way and another people group finds salvation another way. 
It's not that one language finds salvation this way and that skin color finds salvation another way. No, all salvation in all the world comes from one source. It comes from God alone. And one way that we could apply this is to understand that there is absolutely no grounds whatsoever within Christianity for racism, for ethnic divisions, for disparity, to, for us to look down on someone else because of their skin color or the language they speak or the nation that they come from. There's no place for it whatsoever in Christianity because God's salvation extends to all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all skin colors. God will save His people, and this motivates us to get the gospel to them. That's the first motivation. Here's the second. The acknowledgement of God's praise. We're motivated for God's praise to be acknowledged in the world. So you notice starting in verse 11, verses 11 and 12, all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures. These are beings that are mentioned earlier in Revelation as surrounding God's throne, as being there in the presence of the Lord on His throne. And, and many times what the angels and the creatures and the elders and, and, and other people in the scene, many times what they're doing is, is they're feeding off of one another. So, so as one group maybe would cry out praise, the other group would join in or would echo or would add to it. And apparently that's, what hap that's what's happening here with the angels. So you have in verses 9 and 10, the people crying out with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God. And then all the angels are standing around the throne. And they, notice their posture, they go from standing to falling on their faces before the throne. So it's as if they take the worship that's being offered by the people, by the multitude, and they add to it by falling on their faces before the throne and worshiping God. So, so again, this seems to anticipate or assume a question, something like, well, what is the extent of the praise that is being offered to God. Just like we asked, what is the extent of the authority that God has to save? Well, the extent of the praise that's being offered to God is that God receives praise not just from all peoples on the earth, but even from the angels. Even the angels join in worshiping God for His salvation of the nations. Which helps us make sense of a verse like Ephesians 3.10, that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that is, to the angelic beings. God makes Himself known to the angelic beings through the church, through the 
people that he redeems. Peter says in his first letter, 1 Peter 1, that angels long to look into salvation. They don't receive it for themselves, yet they long to look into it, and they even worship God as He is saving people from all over the globe. And as they fall on their faces before the throne, they too are making a confession. And what is that confession? They say in verse 12, Blessing and honor and glory, uh, blessing and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And there are seven things that they attribute to God here, six of which they don't give to God as much as it is. They just acknowledge that God has these things. They acknowledge that God has blessing and glory and wisdom and honor and power and might. They don't give to God those things as if He doesn't already have them. But it's the middle one of the seven, number four out of the seven, that they offer to Him because they acknowledge He has all the others, and that is thanksgiving. They offer thankful worship to God, acknowledging that He is the blessed and glorious and wise and honorable and powerful and mighty one. Mighty even to save from all the peoples on the earth. So, notice from this that worship is the goal of missions. We do missions so that worship will happen all across the earth and in the heavens. For these angels, worship is why they were created. And really, we could say that's why we were created as well, is to worship the Lord. So I think that, (laughs) I don't know that anyone can improve on the words of John Piper as he has famously written that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. He says, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And he goes on to say that the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God, which leads to our third motivation for missions. Number three, eternal joy in God's presence. Eternal joy in God's presence. The gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God who is worthy to be worshipped because He has completed the goal of saving people from all nations. So the question is asked at the beginning of verse 13. John is addressed by one of the elders with the question, Who are these? Who's this multitude? Who are these who are clothed in white robes? Where have they come from? John very bluntly says to the elder, Sir, you know 
You tell me. I'm just watching. And so the answer comes from the elder. Who are these? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Why are their robes white? Because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So who are these? We would say that these are they who have been purchased to stand in God's presence. Why is it that this multitude is able to stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb of God? How is it that they are given these white robes? The answer is they can stand there wearing these white robes because their robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Which is to say that access to the presence of God, to be able to stand before the throne of God, to be a worshiper of God, is only possible when you and I have our sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That is that we believe that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth counts for us. That His obedience to God is our only hope of righteousness for ourselves because He has obeyed God perfectly and we have not. He has succeeded where all the rest of us have failed. And so we must trust in His righteousness to count for us, to be imputed to us, to have any hope of standing before God, to have any hope of being welcomed into the presence of God. We need our robes to be washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. So, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you are not yet a worshiper of Jesus, and you want to be in the presence of God forever, I plead with you, trust the finished work of Christ. Trust His perfect obedience in life and death. Trust His resurrection from the dead to conquer your sins. These have been purchased to stand in God's presence. They've been brought out of the great tribulation. Some interpret that to uh, to to represent a specific seven-year period of time in the future, and this multitude is saved during that time. That's entirely possible. Other interpreters take this period of tribulation simply to represent all of church history, all of the time from the ascension of Jesus back into heaven until the time when he comes again to the earth. Maybe is an entire period of tribulation. But whichever interpretation you take... The point is the same. The only way to come out of the great tribulation and to stand in the presence of God is to have your robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb, to be justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we also see that these who have been purchased to stand in God's presence will be preserved to serve in God's presence. You could say that those who have been justified will be glorified. In verse 15, we're told that they will be sheltered 
They're before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And the one who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. The description here is a lot like that of priests in the Old Testament who would serve in the temple day and night. And here, before God's throne, the one who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. In verse 16, we see that they will be sustained. They have no more hunger, no more thirst. The sun does not strike them, nor any scorching heat. These are promises that are fulfilled from all the way back in Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah 49.10. Speaking of those who would be restored into God's presence. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. And so John says it shall be with those who will stand in God's presence. They will be sustained. And finally in verse 17, they will be shepherded. Because the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. John's imagery here is brilliant. The lamb is their shepherd. He is the one who guides them into springs of living water. Reminding us of Psalm 23. The Lord being our shepherd so that we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures and he leads us beside still Waters here guiding his people into springs of living water and promising that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, accomplishing the promise given all the way back in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. God will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And John makes the same promise at the end of this letter, Revelation 21.4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So one way for you and I to apply this truth, this motivation, is to understand that our affections, such as joy and gladness, our pursuit of those things, are, to paraphrase, C.S. Lewis, they are not too strong. They are too weak. Gladness and joy are worthy pursuits. If, if solemnness equals piety before God, then God would multiply our tears in the coming ages, not promise to take them all away. And He promises that we will be eternally joyful and glad in His presence. And so we are motivated by that promise to make Him known in the world so that others will also know that gladness. So notice the logic of all of this. Salvation for all the peoples is from God, which leads to worship in the presence of God being offered to God so that those who are in His presence will be glad in God Himself. From God, to God, in God, with God. God, the beginning God, the end goal of all that we aim to do in missions. 
global salvation being received from the Lamb of God, universal worship being offered before the throne of God, and eternal gladness being experienced in the presence of God. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. The goal of missions, the salvation of the peoples, the greatness of God expressed in the worship being given by the people and by the angels for the gladness of the peoples eternally in His presence. So, brothers and sisters, let us not be motivated into missions by guilt as though something we've procrastinated in doing can be put off no longer. Rather, let our worship of God, even in this moment as we're gathered together for worship, let our worship of God and our confidence in His ability to keep His promises, let all of that overflow into a desire to see every people group yet unreached joining us in that worship and in this mission. Because from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To Him be the glory now and forever. Let's pray. So, Father, we are glad in these promises, in these purposes, in these motivations. We trust that our standing before you is due to you and your gracious offering of the Lamb who was slain in our place for our sins on our behalf, that we might be washed clean of all of our sins. So, Lord, let us faithfully go to people yet in their sins and tell them there's a way to be made clean from their sins so that they can stand in eternal joy before you. I pray, motivate us to that end that our joy would be multiplied as we see others joyously coming to you and let us be motivated by the promise that all this will one day be fulfilled. We trust in you for it. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We give ourselves to you for this mission and ask that you'd accomplish it through us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.